Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Caleb Parker. Caleb is a General Conference lay delegate in the North Carolina Conference. He lives in Durham with his husband and dog and is a senior nonprofit researcher in global health. He's a leader in his local church and he's passionate about the UMC. Friends, I've known Caleb for a couple of years but I was not prepared for his formation story. From experiencing harm when he first came out as a gay man to having to take a break from church due to performative allyship, it is a wonder why Caleb is so invested in this denomination. And yet, you'll hear in this interview the reason why the United Methodist Church matters so much to him. I believe that Caleb is a model of laity leadership, supporting the work of the church, but also speaking truth to power and gracefully calling us to be who we're called to be. This was a powerful interview for me and I will not soon forget it. I think you'll find it compelling and helpful. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's settle in and listen to Caleb Parker. Caleb Parker, welcome to the Bar of the Conference. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We have done our share of organizing and uh, conspiring to lead the United Methodist Church, at least in the SEJ, in a good direction, um, a dire good direction as far as we're concerned. Um, and yet there's so much that I don't know about how Caleb Parker actually like got to the United Methodist Church. So I'd love to start there. I'd love to start with your story, um, God's Provenient Grace, leading you to salvation um, and becoming a part of the UMC and any of that formative stuff you'd like to share with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. I, um, my, my story begins with family. We uh, have been going to the same little church out in Northeast North Carolina for as long as, as I, um, or as long as I know. Um, and uh, so it's been entrenched in me, uh, in our family, that we are United Methodists, or whatever it was before the iteration of United Methodism, right? The church was built in 1791. So there's a lot of history there. Um, and that's where I learned in church and Sunday school that God loves me, that there's something bigger than self, that community is incredibly important. Um and it was a bit isolating as well, being being there in that, because um, we were tucked away, kind of off on our own, and uh, getting a sense of what the connection was really came when I went to East Carolina and was uh, got my undergraduate degree and my master's degree there. And while I was there, I was really involved in the United Methodist um, Campus Ministry, the Wesley Foundation. And uh, for me, 
that was where more, I think, of my theology was um, tested um, beyond the, I think, more basic God loves you to what does it mean to be following Jesus in this world? How do we how do we try strive for something uh, better than ourselves? Um, and it got into uh, some wonderful conversations with the the group there, and so I was in, on the leadership team and just really embedded with uh, the Wesley Foundation um, for you know my undergraduate um, career, and that's really where I came out. That was where I came out, and um, my the first person that I came out to as this very scared, somewhat sheltered farm boy from Northeastern North Carolina came into, began to come into my own and and saw uh, somebody who was important to me at the Wesley Foundation. And uh, she was a leader and I found a space where I could come out to her one day during, it was like a prayer at the chapel and we were the only people there. And I used that to, to come out to her ball of tears and, and she just looked at me kind of deer in the headlights and said, it's okay. You're just possessed by a demon and come with me. I'm going to take you to the other church that I go to. Uh, and he can, um, he can pray this out of you. And so I was in a very vulnerable place and looking back, I was like, clearly I should have said, no, thank you. But I, I didn't. I mean, I, I, this is a woman that I trusted and I just, you know, anyway, I went with her and this football coach of a pastor in a strip mall church kind of thing. Um, just like prayed over me and, and I just stared. I remember staring at that like nasty navy blue carpet in his office while he's like yelling this prayer over me and just thinking like, this is not the God that I know. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but this is not it. And uh, and I remember leaving. Um, uh, she had taken me there. And so we went back and she dropped me off and she thought everything was going to be fine. And I was just like, this is not fine. This is not fine. And that's when I, I went and came out to my campus minister and he was just like, oh my God, you told her first. <laughs> like I am, oh. I am your person. And, and, and I was like the most welcoming and affirming space that I could ever be in. Oh my Caleb. Oh my. Um, Thank you for being willing to share that part of your story. I definitely did not know that. Um, you you want to tell us a little bit of maybe what happened next with your campus minister and if there's anything more there? There's a lot more there because that was, I think, my second year there. Mm. So I guess it was a sophomore. And um, I found my group. I found my people mm. that were the allies, uh, a couple other queer people. And became, uh, I found my people. It was amazing. So the campus minister, Scott Wilkinson, and his wife, Vicki, who was uh, also a, a strong part of the campus ministry, kind of became um, a really wonderful resource for me. And for other students who were also uh, queer or just questioning and trying to figure out where they belong. Um, and he in particular really provided space 
for having conversation and question. Um, and I just thought that the, the the Bible studies that he led and the uh, the times we were together in these really long student leadership team meetings were really formative, um, wonderful spaces for me to be in. Um, and there were some tricky times there because again, I'm, I'm not involved in the conference at this point. I'm involved just really locally and I don't understand how things work. I've got a lot to learn and I don't know what I don't know until something like this happens. So the North Carolina Wesley foundations, I think they were received some support from the conference, but not everything. And so we have to go and we have to get monies from funds from local congregations. Well, by I think the second year or so, third year, I'm uh, dating the um, another person, another guy who is at the Wesley Foundation. We're both on the campus ministry team, and we um, I'm slowly coming out to people that I trust. And one of those people that I thought I could trust went and told one of the big, more evangelical Methodist churches in our um, local area. And when they found out, uh, their administrative council met. And they decided unanimously to withhold funding from our Wesley Foundation. And they were, they were probably bringing in more than a third of our money. Um, so it would have definitely changed what we could do. Um, they didn't talk to their pastor. They didn't tell us. They didn't have a conversation. They didn't vet anything. It just happened. Um, and then when the pastor found out and when my campus minister found out, there was a lot more conversations that happened and things were... Um, uh, resolved. Um, but I knew, <laughs> I think that was one of the key moments for me that the, the way United Methodism exists, it is one of, um, uh, power plays. It's not like there's, there was an issue with the connectionalism there. There was it was not like wanting to understand, wanting to listen, wanting to be understood. There was people in power with agendas. And, um, uh, you know, here we are as a campus ministry, and I had no idea how dangerous, if you would, I could be. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm just, I was so hoping that there was going to be this really beautiful, like, but I went to my United Methodist campus minister and everything went up and to the right from there. Um, I know that's not really the story for most of us. Um, and I'm just, oh, I'm so heartbroken. For um, me, I but I had him, right? I had Scott and I mm -hmm. had a, a group there and we did this, uh, did this work together and Scott had our backs and he, I remember when when some other students came to a meeting one time and said um, uh, of our leadership meeting, like we think that, you know, they read some scripture and basically said that you have two gay people up here on your leadership team and they need to be removed. And Scott said over my dead body. And I think that that was a beautiful mm -hmm. moment of of allyship, of yeah. support. And I, I, I got that from him the whole time. He protected us and still does and in his way. And praise God for Scott and for allies who are not afraid of the moments that their allyship will cost them. They're willing to step into the gap and, as you said, have our backs. 
And I do obviously want to talk more about your connection to United Methodism, but I'm interested. You're one of the first folks that I am interviewing who's currently like your day job is not inside the institution of the United Methodist Church or inside a local church. Um, you are a lay person who is deeply engaged in the life of the United Methodist Church, but you you have a job that is not, <laughs> not connected to the system, um, different from me, different from other lay folks that I've interviewed. So I'm curious to just how has your call as as a lay person sort of informed your work or how does your work inform your call and 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 just would love to hear a little bit of that um before we come back to the umc you know i was um i was part of the united method student movement i was a, a student leader on that for a few years when i was an undergraduate awesome and we need I, to bring um, that back. We need to bring the student yeah. movement back. We yeah. do. It's beautiful. It was wonderful. I it's loved time. it so much. Yeah. I so student leader on there, and I was like vice chair or whatever it was, and was asked to come to the GBHEM, so the the board under which we were uh, their uh, their meeting, and they asked all the the young people. There was three of us that were at the board meeting to talk about our call. And I sat with that word for the longest time because I knew the call really meant the crawl toward a ministry. And, you know, it was like, oh, you know, where, um, what are you called for? Of course, it's going to be ordained ministry. And all of the people that was on the Methodist student movement with me, they were all called into some form of ordained ministry. And I wasn't. And in fact, I couldn't be right because of our, our policy. And so I said that to the board. Um, my call is not to ordain ministry um, be because in part, you won't let it be. <laughs> and uh, that, got, that got a few remarks afterwards. Nothing ho horrible, but it, I got some remarks. Mm. But it's true. I mean, like, that's honestly what it is. But instead, I'm, I'm a data person. My, my love language is data use for decision making. And I'm a geospatial analyst. And so I came out of university with... Um, a social sciences background and geography. And I support different um, teams within, I work for an uh, international uh, nonprofit working in human development and I uh, support all kinds of teams working in HIV, uh, tuberculosis, neglected tropical diseases, maternal child health, uh, education, crisis response uh, and so forth. And uh, so my day job is working on these different global platforms, um, global teams rather on these different, um, different projects. And one of the, one of the projects, I'll get to this in a moment, but I, I left the Methodist church for a bit because it was just, I just could not do that. And I, I put my heart and soul instead into this work because I saw it being in some ways transformative for, for, what we could do, you know, we're doing the work in, in international development. Sometimes it's just Excel spreadsheets, you know, it's like somebody told me like, you're, oh my God, you're saving the world. I was like, yeah, one PowerPoint at a time, right? You know, I'm not. And and I just want to double click. Yeah. One Excel spreadsheet, one PowerPoint at a time, saving the world. Yes. I am here for those who understand and appreciate the gift of God that is data. Okay. Keep going. Thank keep you. Going. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, 
I was so I was working on a on a study um, in the Caribbean asking people who were at risk of HIV, and these were specifically um, female sex workers, transgender women, and men who have sex with men. So those are in the HIV programmatic world. So those are key populations and persons uh, more marginalized who have less access to healthcare resources um, and who experience higher risk of HIV because they are marginalized people, specifically like trans women. Um, and so working in Haiti, working in uh, uh, Barbados, uh, uh, El Salvador, and, and interviewing um, folks, um, asking about their experiences of violence, gender-based violence, and how that contributes to their risk for HIV. Again, it's all in the context of HIV. Anyway, what, we, when asking about this, you know, yes, intimate partner, my, my boyfriend beats me. I, um, uh, on the bus, uh, people throw things. I, uh, uh, when I try to go to um, receive any health care, they leave me for last. And then if there's room for me at the end of the day, they might see me, but I'm always disrespected. But then it was the church. And the church was always a place of harm. I was raised there. I sang in the choir. But as soon as I knew I was a woman and started to dress like that, I was kicked out in like every instance. And I think that goes across the board, right? And I, I thought, um, what if, if we were doing church right, what if, what would it look like for trans women in Haiti, in Barbados, in, in the Caribbean, in the U.S.? right? What would it look like if we did church right for them, for us, for marginalized people? And I, that, that is one of the, one of the reasons why I felt strongly about returning because Mm. there is a better place we can be that we are called to be right, Derek. I am. This has already been powerful for me, Caleb. So um, I'm just navigating my emotions as I stay in the interviewer seat. Thank you for sharing so openly and honestly. You're right. I mean, what a question. What would it be like if we did church right by trans women? What would it be like if we did church right by marginalized people across the planet? And it's in many ways, you know, just like you, while I'm still, why I'm still in, in this work, because I do think it's still possible for the United Methodist Church to be a part of that dream, mm-hmm. but it's hard. It's hard to advocate for that kind of vision it's hard to work for that kind of vision. Um, and as you said, you left the church for a bit. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to that decision and what 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 life was like being, I'll say distant, feel free to put in a different word there, but distant yeah. from the church for a season or two? Yeah, I went, um, yeah, I did, I did my graduate degree at East Carolina 
And I studied the politics of homosexuality in North Carolina churches, right? And I did surveys with pastors, and that was so informative. Wow. Um, and uh, after that, I got this job with the current organization I'm with, and that was, um, gosh, 16 years ago. And when I, I moved to Durham, and of course, like the reconciling church is Calvary. Um, they've since changed names when they merged with another church, Elizabeth Street. But I went to Calvary and uh, became part of the Reconciling United Methodist and Friends of North Carolina. And that was the, you know, the RMN network here and um, went to annual conference, never as a voting delegate, but as a, uh, I was at a booth with the RMN booth and um, organizing meetings um, hosting meetings and became, uh, started to lead that as well. And, uh, Gail C. Felton, Reverend Doctor was, uh, there. Um, I think she was, um, retired at the time. Uh, what a wonderful woman there with Lori Hayes Kaufman and just like, a such a strong team. And I remember feeling incredibly well connected and cared for, um, it met me where I needed. And then after trying to like the organizing and asking, asking people who were progressives and asking people who were kind, uh, uh, other, maybe they didn't identify as progressive, but I knew they were kind to, to like join us and be part of this and do the work. And then, and then seeing how it's like, well, I just don't think that if, you know, if word got out, you know, my congregation found out or, for lay people, it's just like, I don't know that I can really engage in that. I'm, you know, doing other things. And it's just like kind of saying, listen, we we need you to to help us move this this forward. Um, and people just not being interested or or being interested, but not being willing to commit. I remember one one time we hosted a um, reconciling meeting for you know North Carolina and one of the local churches, and there was almost this people were coming in and there was this feeling of looking over your shoulder, making sure that nobody saw you when you came in. Um, I mean, it's like, who's going to see you? It's a, you know, it's a parking lot in the woods, but it's, it was a feeling of, Oh, I'm taking a big risk here. And I don't know if I can do this anyway. There were, there were supporters, but it was, it was, it was not a, um, it was like herding cats for a while, right? It was like begging people to be a part of this and there was no movement forward. It was just, it was stalling. Um, I didn't know really where to take it. And uh, so I stepped away and I stepped away from church and I put myself into uh, the work because I felt like my work was moving, moving forward more than, than church was. And I wanted to return. Like I had given so much of myself and so much of my identity was tied into United Methodism, the Wesley Foundation, my home church, uh, you know, Calvary. And I needed, I just needed, um, I needed space. Um, some time for reflection. Hmm. And I wanted to know when I could rejoin. So as I was, I was really waiting for a sign that there would be a time for me to come back. I don't know what it looked like. But I knew that it just wasn't wasn't working for me. Yeah. If I could ask a question in response, and and I'd love for you, love for you to reframe what I'm about to say if I don't if I didn't get it right. But what I thought I heard you say was, in a different set of words, it wasn't 
traditionalists or conservatives that sort of pushed you away from church for a season. It wasn't um, necessarily or directly bad theology, but it was quote unquote allies who weren't willing to really stand in the gap for queer folk in the church. Am I wrong in hearing that from you? No, that's exactly what it was. There was a there was a wonderful group of of people who were, you know, and it, the use of the, the term labels is limiting, but the uh, who were progressive, who believe that queer folks are fully human and belong fully in the Methodist Church, um, and they were were nice, and I I love them, and um, there were many more who believed the same way, but felt that the risk was too great to outwardly and openly stand up. It leads me to a, a, a different kind of conversation um, around what it is like for queer folk to be in church. And I think that there's one conversation about blatant homophobia, blatant transphobia, blatant misogyny, blatant, you know, discrimination and and harm. And then there's another conversation that looks like a conversation about a lack of moral courage, a conversation about um, being a performative ally and the ways that sometimes folks who say they're for us, us as in queer folk, us as in marginalized folks, um, when when people don't show up for us, that feels like a different kind of barrier to entry, a barrier to engagement. And in some respects, we've kind of already gone there, but I'd I'd love to dive just a little deeper in your thoughts there. And and and, and in some respects, because. My experience of you, Caleb, <laughs> you may not like this, uh, but my experience of you is that you tend to sniff that out in a room. Um, and I feel like you call that out really well. I didn't realize that it probably comes from personal experience. <laughs> yes. Um, but we don't talk about that other barrier, the barrier of our that our allies, our quote unquote allies create in keeping us from church. And and what do you think what do you think is there? What do you think why do you think that happens both for us as well as for those allies that that barrier gets created? Um, because we see it as a performance. Hmm. That's that's the barrier. Because we, uh, there is a there's a responsibility by people who believe that we are fully human and fully loved. If you take that on, if you say those words, I need you to prove it. Especially when we're up against a wall, I need you to have our back. Um, and I saw that by my campus minister. Scott was amazing at doing that. Um, So it's almost like getting burned. It's almost like gaslighting. It actually, I guess, is gaslighting to see um, somebody who believes that way, but then can't live into 
active support. And so whenever, I don't know if you do this, but as a, as a queer person, especially I kind of learned this back in um, uh, undergraduate, you know, I, I, I went to um, Campus Crusade for Christ my first year because I was on Wednesday nights and Wesley was on Thursday nights. And that's where I like the cool kids were going was Campus Crusade. There's mm. a lot of people and they had really good music. And all, and I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then mm. um, over that year, I learned that they they did not want me, like the friendships that I had made were prescribed. Uh, they were trying to save my soul. I was a number and they did not care about who I was. They cared about that I was, a, 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 you know, saved, right? And I, um, I, I learned the hard way there because I had, I thought friends and, and they were not my friends. Um, and then going to local churches uh, there around in, in Greenville and getting a sense of like, um, who, who was who? And my naivete thinking that, you know, there's are, are these, you know, decent people and then knowing, finding out that they're not. And so I learned to be on guard that, that, that you can't trust anybody, especially in a church to have your back. If you're found out what's going to happen, because I've seen what can happen. Um, and so whenever I would go to a church, whenever I would, uh, you know, another place or with friends or some other city, I was looking for signs. I always look for signs to see, are you, uh, if you say you're progressive, are you actually living up to it? Can I, I, can I see it in your bulletin? Will I hear it from, from your, from who, who is speaking? Um, uh, cause if not, I don't know that you are. It's just this, it's this thing of like all lives matter. If somebody says, you know, all are welcome. What does that mean? You have to unpack it. You have to name names. Otherwise yeah, I feel like yeah. it is simply performative. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Caleb, uh, we met just a little bit after the special session uh, in 2019. And I've said in some other episodes that this, what happened at the special session, the passing of the traditional plan, the impact of it really depends on where you were, um, the, the culture and sort of the temperature of, of the annual conference and even local church that you were part of, the special session affected everyone differently. But I know that it had a specific impact on your life. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of how you responded to the passing of the traditional plan at that special session of general conference. I was not in church at this point. I had been out for a bit and I saw this coming. Like I'd, I'd heard about 2016 happening and creating the, um, the, the, the little committee, you know, on the way forward, whatever it was. And so 
commission on the way forward. Yeah. Mission on the way forward. Yes. Yep, yes. Yep. And so they're coming back in 2019. And I don't know if you remember that meme of um, Michael Jackson in the movie theater where he's just like popping popcorn with his wide, yeah. eyes wide open. Like, I am oh, yeah. for this drama. I've used that you know, meme. I've used yes, that meme. Yeah. I was that meme. I was that meme <laughs> at 2019. And I was at my desk. I was at the entire time. I had it live streaming. I think I was, I don't know. I think it was during a weekday. I remember watching it at work and getting nothing else done. And I am just here for it because I realize I'm bitter. I, I have unprocessed anger with folks in the Methodist church. And I think that's really what was coming out. And I was there to watch the United Methodist church die. I was, I was just like, you're getting what you paid for. That's where I was. And I look at that and reflect on it. And I, it saddens me that that's where I was because, but I was there because I wanted so much more. Like there was so much more potential. There were so many beautiful people that were part of this that were, um, I needed them to step up, you know? And so I'm I'm just watching this go. And of course, I know the worst is going to happen. But when the worst happened, I was a mess. I was an absolute, I was like weeping at my desk. Um, just, and angry and sad and everything like like folks there and like you know I'm, I'm watching it on the live feed and i've got somebody else's facebook who, or, or twitter or somebody was posting and i was on a somehow maybe i was on a whatsapp group i can't remember all the details but it was like all this information coming in and people saying that what does this person mean and then that resolution and this vote is going to mean this and all and it was just like i'm back in i'm back in it i'm back in the middle of this and it's not where i thought i was going to end up you know, mm. I thought it was just going to be a, a fun little time. I remember that happening. Like the, the you know, remember the monster trucks are coming in. So we've mm -hmm. got to, we got to vote. We got to vote. And they voted. And let me tell you what, the monster trucks are still here, right? It's like they mm. haven't left. And we here we are um, with this piece of trash policy, polity now. And... I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, have my connection anymore, but I saw, so I went, um, I, I just driving around Durham and I saw the next day Duke Memorial. I'd never been there. It's Duke Memorial is this big old wealthy white church in the middle of Durham. That's the, uh, you know, it was, it was what, you know, uh, uh, Duke himself gave money for and started up and everything. And, and all, and they, I had all, so when I had been in Durham, I was part of Calvary and I saw them as the forward thinking progressives and not so much Duke Memorial, but then I drive by Duke Memorial and they are, they've wrapped themselves in rainbow flags and rainbow bunting everywhere. And I was astounded. Mm. And if you were, if you remember, like I was part of the reason that I was upset is because people were not stepping forward and risking. Right. And mm -hmm. now, now, now people are starting to step forward and risk, put themselves in a position of like, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. And so it's like, finally, finally, something, maybe this is what we needed this whole time. I don't think it was, but I am, I appreciate where we have ended up because it brings people out. It brings progressives out. It brings centrists out because they're like, oh, wait, 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 this is not the church I wanted. I don't want to be a church of a traditional plan. Um, so I went to the garage and I got my box 
of RMN stuff that I've had for forever. I know where it was. And I get my stole that I got at the 2004, 2005 um, Hearts on Fire Reconciling Convocation, right? That was signed by some church member who made it. And I put it on. I told my husband, I'm going to go to church this morning. And I went <laughs> and I wore it. And I I walked myself in and I sat down right in the right in the center and I cried the entire service, hmm. along with many other people who were also wearing rainbow stoles. The ministry team up there were wearing rainbow stoles, visibly upset, uh, angry, um, apologetic. Like I don't know these people. I don't know anybody in this room. And. Um, we had communion served to us that day. I think, I, mean, I don't know if that was the first of the month or something, but yeah, it was the first of March. And uh, from from there, I've, I felt like I now have a space again. And in this connection, like here is a place for me because I don't have to, <laughs> I can walk in and be a part of something moving forward um, and not have to, to push and beg and plead. And you, you really stayed. I mean, you, I, I'm guessing you got involved. Like, because yeah. I meet you as a general conference delegate and ready to really like, let's, let's, let's go. Like, let, let's take the church forward. So, so help me like, it, and give me sort of the timeline from going back to church the Sunday after the traditional plan passes to me meeting Caleb, who is a general conference delegate to a general conference that we haven't had yet. Um, and, and, and just being so ready to move this ball forward. Give, give yeah. me, yeah, get me from point A to point H. <laughs> Everything happened really fast, honestly. There was um, folks who were part of that, the, the, the progressive folks that I knew that was part of um, the reconciling group uh, and new voices were like, hey, we need to do a thing. Um, so there was this uh, group called Sacred Witness that was formed for North Carolina. And we put out, um, uh, we, we organized, we put out a statement piece and we're like, sign your name and tell us what church you're a part of. And had across the, uh, across the conference, we had people being, um, uh, signing up. I forgot how many over a thousand, I think folks signed up that said, you know, we don't support the traditional plan and um, um, we're here for, you know, a better church kind of thing. And then it was, let's, um, let's hold a, not a pro, I guess it was a protest at the uh, conference office for the Bishop. And um, they were like, let's have people speak and say their piece and all. And, and the Bishop, it was uh, Hope Morgan Ward, um, she was out there. She listened, and then she took the mic and um, and and said her piece. And it was um, I don't know, hundred, two hundred people that came out there. And it was, it was quite, you know, there was there's movement. There's something happening. And then one of my um, friends for years, um, who's always been, he was probably one of the first um, folks doing. Uh, the work of reconciliation at uh, the North Carolina Conference, Sam Isley. Um, and right beside him is Lori Hayes Kaufman. Um, you know, in the 90s, when 
you know, this, this was very risky, but they, um, Sam was like, you should, you should put your name in the hat for general conference. And, um, so, I mean, I did, I was like, why not? It's probably not going to happen, but we had, uh, the group that was organizing put together the list of folks that they would recommend. And I made the list of, of the recommended people. And, you know, these are folks that I had worked with years before. Um, and finally had an opportunity. I, I ran for general conference back in 2007 or whenever it was. And, you know, I didn't get anywhere with it, but I was thinking like, I can, I can do something here. Like, I feel like I've got something that I can say. Um, and so I ran, um, I transferred membership from my home church over to, uh, Duke Memorial and, um, ran and was able to be part of it. And then this was also a Duke Memorial, the life of the church. They've been doing quite a bit of work on full inclusion for queer folks. Um, before the year before I joined or two, they had uh, been having conversations about um, what it means to be a fully inclusive church and the rights of queer folks. And they were ready that when 2019 came, uh, General Conference came, that they were not performing allyship. They had been working on it. They had been doing their due diligence. And when it happens, here we are. We're not acting. We are, we are doing the work. Um, and because of that, queer people began to come. Um, and they had said, if you remember in the, the, the 2019 policy, it was that if you are a Methodist pastor who performs a wedding of queer folks, um, you will be whatever it is, tried and convicted, and you will be, you know, uh, removed from your position for a year without pay. And if you do it again, we'll take your ordination. Uh, church council decided that they are going to, um, they are going to host as church council. They would support hosting gay weddings and that our pastor, Heather Rodriguez, if she did a gay wedding and uh, the bishop removed her, they would hire her back on, right? They, we, they, we are committed to this. So it just so happens that Thomas and I had been engaged for over four years. And I never, ever thought that I would ever be able to get married in a Methodist church. And I think, like, I clearly that's what I had wanted because that's what I thought I should be able to have. That's what all my family had done, you know, like, so why can't, I'm not good enough to get married in a Methodist church, right? You know, mm -hmm. so it's just like... Um, mm -hmm. I remember sitting down in a coffee shop with Heather and getting to know her. And she said, you know, church council has just announced this. This was that summer after annual conference. And I said, um, so would you like to marry? <laughs> would you like to officiate the marriage of, of me and Thomas? And she was like, I was hoping you would ask. And so that February of 2020, right before the February 29th, 2020, right before the pandemic shut everything down. Um, she and 10 other, 11 other clergy officiated our wedding, um, standing in solidarity with Heather uh, and with us. We had, we had invited quite a few pastors to support us in that. Um, and we made a statement about it and said, you know, we don't stand for this. And uh, a complaint was filed and there was a just resolution that, came to pass for uh, for Heather with the bishop uh, afterwards, and she retained her job, her credentials. Um, and that's the level, that's what I mean by getting people to put their, risk something for us, 
you know, we, we yeah. need your support, but we need not the performative allyship. We need actual support. Yeah. And Scott Wilkinson was part of it. My campus minister, I invited him back in. He is right there. He's at a church in, um, we call it Little Washington in North Carolina, so you don't get it mixed up with Big Washington, D.C., but it's uh, <laughs> Washington, uh, down, way way out east. Uh, he was there. He's semi-retired, and he was the music minister, one of the music ministers or something there. When they found out that he officiated a wedding of homosexuals, they sat him down. And they read him a list of all of his offenses and they forced him out, forced him out. And so he lost his job. That and and that was very it was a very real moment for mm. for us. One of the other pastors that was there, I believe he's in his 80s. His son died of AIDS uh, in the 90s. And he lived with lives with the absolute um Regret just doesn't res- describe it of him not being able to be there for his son and like giving him the opportunity to step in and in a moment of celebration and an authority of celebration, right? As an officiant, a co-officiant of a, of a gay wedding as a Methodist pastor, you know, there's, there's quite a few um, beautiful stories wrapped up in, in that day that were well beyond just me and Thomas um, that highlight who we can be if we are better than who we are as a Methodist church. So beautiful. When I met you, Caleb, it was the very beginnings of uh, a work of attempting to organize queer delegates in time for whenever we would have general conference. Mm -hmm. Um, When we had our first meeting, I sensed the deep sense of urgency that you brought to the Zoom room. And I even think if my memory serves me correctly, it was a conversation you had with Helen Ride who also works for RMN that sort of catalyzed that initial Zoom meeting, I think. Yeah. Um, what was your desire for queer delegates? Well, I, I had this conversation with them, with Helen, and said, Hi, <laughs> I just got elected. Uh, I'm brand new to this, and I know that you're going to. Um, what do we do? You know, where's where's the rest of us? Because I heard, you know, there was this progressive wave or the wave of, of progressive and centrist delegates that got elected across the U.S. Okay, so Helen, do you know where they are? Because <laughs> I don't know any of them. I don't know if you already do anything like having this queer delegation. And they were like, "I no, we've never we've never done this before because this is something we've never had." Mm-hmm. <laughs> there clearly have been queer people that are delegates simply not organized. Yeah. And we started going through our networks, really, they did, and the rest of, of you all did, like, hey, who do you know that's on the, the in the alphabet, the LGBTQs that are, <laughs> that, that just got elected, you know, we need to get to know each other. And so it was just like, oh, wow, there's like 12 of us. Oh my goodness, oh wait, no, no, there's 20, it's up to 30 now. And so, you know, we had this like sign up form. 
And I think now we're over 60 people and we're continually finding folks, uh, which is a substantial number of queer folks who have authority and voting rights within the Methodist church. And it's Mm -hmm. like, if 2019 had not happened, if the, if the pendulum had not swung so far back and really exposed who we are, who we could be, right? To a bunch of folks, um, I don't know that we would be here right now. I don't think we would be here. No, I don't. So we, we've done some good work and I'll, I'll save our queer delegates convo for another interview um, for another day. But um, obviously general conference got postponed once then again, and then again, but then uh, a jurisdictional conference gets scheduled because we need bishops. Um, and so we finally get to do more than talk about organizing and preparing for a conference. We get to really step into a space and do some real um, coalition work to possibly begin to help the United Methodist Church, particularly in the Southeastern jurisdiction, really be all that some of us believe that it can be through the election of bishops and through the passing of some resolutions. I'm curious what your thoughts were going into that jurisdictional conference, um, some of your takeaways as we were navigating mm-hmm. that jurisdictional conference, and even some of your reflections as we look back um, just a few months from from that time that we had in Lake Junaluska. Oh yeah, clear feelings of like, wow, we're doing a thing. And this is the first time we get to do a thing. And this is important. I'm excited. I'm really skeptical. I'm really skeptical about who was going to be in the room. You know, this is still the same slate of progressive and centrist delegates, right? Is it going to, are we going to prove it? Are we going to see it? What's it going to look like? Um, So the work that we had done as a queer delegation before this was to say, we are writing legislation that simply says, hey, we are queer folks, we belong in the church, and we as a uh, uh, jurisdiction support that idea. Um, and so I helped to you know, write that legislation up. There was a small group of us from the queer delegation that did that, and a bunch of us signed it, you know, who had time to. Um, so, oh my gosh, this is, we're gonna do this, you know? We're gonna see this. And so we get there, we you know hear from all the bishops and then we vote and we vote and we vote and we vote and of course we vote in the um, old white guy first you know ton yes let's do that and then uh, and then it's another another white person and then there are, I forgot how many um, women of color in particular who um, that's the rest of the candidates and then it was just this um, pretty awful time of um, back and forth voting and and watching numbers and I just. I just um, felt um, there has to be a better way to do this work. Um, there has to be a better way. There's actually a commission that was formed to, to look into this, right? And uh, the inherent racism that's, that's part of this, of uh, who we still are, um, that we need to do a lot of work on. The other part of that is that 
when it came time for resolutions, um, Helen receives word from the agenda committee, which is Bishop Swanson, who is the elder bishop and basically responsible for the jurisdictional conference and is just saying, we're going to meet with all three writers of all three resolutions. And so pick two people, you know, and come. So it was Helen and, you know, you went to that meeting. Uh, you could tell the story better, but it was basically like, you're all out of order and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't tell you why you are out of order, but you're out of order, right? Is that not the story? We were out of order because an order for resolutions had not been created. Um, some annual conferences have committees on resolutions, but our jurisdiction never received resolutions before. So there was, um, there was no actual process by which resolutions could be received, could be vetted, could be approved or not approved. Um, and even that being, uh, it being uh, sort of by default that it went to the agenda committee, the agenda committee hadn't been seated until after jurisdictional conference had started because of some other procedural issues. And so I, I don't recall being told that we were out of order directly. That might've been said, and I just don't recall it, but definitely the feeling that we were out of order um, mm -hmm. was definitely there for sure. So the, the idea, thank you for that. Uh, the idea that, that, hey, there's a group of Methodists in the jurisdiction that felt empowered and um, necessary that we have this these these three pieces of legislation was not something that was just like oh no we can't we just can't do this because it just it's not in in order you know why not say wow we need to make this happen it is my responsibility as the agenda committee to figure out how to make this happen how do we put this in order yeah maybe we haven't done this before but that should not be what leads. Uh, uh, the 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 way forward for us. I don't know, you know. Anyway, so um, you know, it gets ruled out of order um, by the agenda committee on the floor, and then there's an immediately somebody who comes up and says, um, "I wish to challenge that." You know, have the body vote on it. So the body voted on it, and we had this is the this is the first sign. Really, I felt like that we had a generally progressive slate of delegates because it was an overwhelming majority who said, we believe that this needs to be, that these resolutions need to be heard. And so they, they were heard the next day. Right. Did I get that, that story, part of that story? You, right? you got it right. And, and now I remember being told it was out of order. <laughs> during yes. jurisdictional conference. I remember now. Thank you. <laughs> So that was, so it's out of order and then it's in order because the body said it was in order. All right, so the next day, um, Bishop Holston is at the dais. He's the one leading the, the charge, the um, plenary and uh, brings before us the first resolution. Uh, I think it's the one on decolonization and the Christmas covenant or the regionalization. It was regionalization. regionalization. Yeah. Right. And so um, the queer one is next. And so they we hear it. We hear discussion. Uh, generally, things are pretty peaceful. And then I was surprised. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and 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 this barn of a building that we're in at Lake Junaluska, right, you know, which is fine. It's fine. And so so then it's our turn. And so Helen is the one. Uh, that was going to be speaking to it. They come to the front and there were, I don't know, six or seven of us 
queer delegates that came up and stood with yeah. them yeah. at the mic. You were one of them. I think you were there yep. with this. Yeah, I was. And um, uh, Helen read the statement. And then Bishop Holston, uh, we sat down and Bishop Holston just said, thanks for reading it, but yours is still out of order. Sorry. And like, what in the world just happened? And next thing I know is I see Helen stands up. They walk down to the front and they they just stand there. And then um, uh, several others walk down. I walk down and there's, I don't know, four or five of us up there and just standing there. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do, but we need, we need to, we need to stop. Um, and getting, getting to that point was, was big. Getting to the next point, which is stopping was also a really important thing to do. We tried talking to the Bishop and he just said, I'm not going to hear it. I'm not going to hear anything more. And then somebody said, you just need to put us on break. Um, and then it became a time, a pretty chaotic time, of trying to figure out a way for us to be heard. Uh, I went to my bishop at the time. It was Bishop Fairley, caught his eye. He and I had been working together on a um, Pioneer's Church issue plant in our neighborhood, an a, a anti-LGBTQ um, church that was planted in the heart of the queerest part of downtown Durham. And we became close because we were working together on that. I told him I needed his help. And so he um, came around and Bishop Gwynn, another former North Carolina bishop, uh, and he um, were, were, we talked through why it was out of order because Holston, Bishop Holston would not tell us why. He would not, he said, I can't tell you why. And so Bishop Gwynn finally said, it's this one word. And um, I was back in 2007 and eight when Bishop Gwynn was present um, I was on the dialogue about homosexuality. I was there mm. for two or three sessions. Mm. Um, and that was a terrible space for queer people to be in because it was some of the honestly meanest and rudest homophobic people there that was supposed to have an equal space at the table and talk through things. And I just never saw Bishop Gwen being really kind to, to queer folks. So I was not really happy that he was the one in the middle of this conversation. But you know what? He and Bishop Fairley pulled through and they identified that one word that needed to change. And Bishop Holston was right there and he heard it and he finally agreed, like, let us look, let us just change this one word, please. And then it'll be in order, right? Hmm. So he allowed it. When I turned around from that conversation, I saw not everybody, but many people, almost everybody out there standing in solidarity with us. I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't know what was happening. And it felt like we had done something. Like that was another traditional plan gift, right? Look, 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 folks, this is what queer people, at least in SEJ, have to go through to get movement. And we need you standing up. If you weren't all standing up, I don't know if Bishop Holston would have heard us. That is what allyship looks like in practice, right? And so we we did it. We, we were able to get the vote. We had an overwhelming vote. And I, I was honestly so mad. I was so, I had so much like that old anger, that old bitterness um, from when that, 
church back in the Wesley Foundation pulled their funding when they found out that gay people were on the campus ministries leadership team, like without telling us, like you've got this, you know what's best for us and you know that we aren't fully human and you get to do with the power that you have, whatever you wish. And that's what I felt like from the agenda committee, from the, uh, from the start. And it was humiliating. It was absolutely Mm -hmm. humiliating. Mm -hmm. This is the UMC that I'm used to, that I was expecting this, this kind of activity. So when I when I see the campaign be UMC, this is what being UMC has meant to me. I want to be be a better UMC. I want mm. to be more than what what we are. I don't want this. I don't want this anymore. And I hope we can figure out a way to not have this happen again at jurisdictional conference. So that's on us. That's on us to figure out. Yeah, you know, being in the room for that moment. Um, it's just so many things happening uh, from the point that Helen starts speaking to the point where the resolution finally passes. So many things happen in that short amount of time. But I have to say one of the things that I remember quite clearly was when Helen stood down in the front and then people joined them. The number of delegates that stood up in their seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were delegates that I knew that might not have even signed up for performative allyship, <laughs> <laughs> let alone like it cost it. But there was this interesting moment of individuals who by virtue of standing would be seen by their delegations uh-huh. that they're standing yeah. at this moment. Yes. And I, I I do think that was some of the power that pushed us into a break that helped get us to what, how to bring this resolution into alignment Um and eventually it passing um, our conference. And I think it was a sign that things are, things are changing um, in the United Methodist Church, uh, particularly in the US. And, and I think about the work that it takes, not simply to advocate for inclusion, but to invite allies to really think about their investment in this work. And the truth is, had it just been queer delegates that had pushed that piece of legislation, I, I don't, I don't think we would have. I don't think we would have had the outcome. The outcome, in part, was. I think, this is Derek, I think that the outcome we had was in part due to allies saying, we stand with you. Literally, we stand with you. And that for some of them has been a 20 year project. 
I think the, the point that you're making about the invitation is key. Not relying on us to do all the work, on queer folks to do all the work, but to say, it's, it's time for you to show up to this. This is where I need you, ally, friend. Reflections on jurisdictional conference for you personally? I don't want to do that again that yeah. way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot that I learned that I don't think we do well. Um, and my, my hope is that we have learned enough and can prepare enough before we go back to jurisdictional conference next fall. We have next just summer. over a year. Next summer. Oh, next summer. It's next summer. Yeah, in the barn. Oh, if you've <laughs> never been in that place in the heat of summer, apparently it's the place to be. Um, will we be able to change the systems before that happens? Mm -hmm. So we're not, I don't know. That's the thing I hope that we can begin to do better is be less reactionary and be more proactive. And that's what I hope that work we're doing for the queer delegation is about. Do you have hope for the United Methodist Church? I wouldn't be here if I didn't, right? I wouldn't have come back. And I think that's what my my big takeaway is that there is there's space for me. There always has been, but now I feel like people have named it. People are standing up and it's um, uh, um, beautiful. Duke Memorial right now in the past do, 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 do three years and change when uh, I'll say they started the work um, and we've picked it up. We have um, more than 40 queer folks who have joined us. We have um, um, probably half of them are generally coming now and part of our queer formation Sunday school group uh, or the different activities that we plan. We have um, a beautiful service around pride and that's when people show up in every like every other Sunday, there's a new probably queer couple or folks that are coming that are like checking things out. And they're doing the same thing that I used to do. They're testing the waters. They're looking to see, am I named? Is this performative? Are you real? Can I find safety here? Maybe I was raised in the church and left and I'm looking for some sort of answers and some form of connection. And that's what I want us to be, right? Not just at Duke Memorial. I want us to be that as, as the United Methodist Church. And I think we can. But here's what I think it's going to take. The same kind of work the church council and the church body put in at Duke Memorial a few years ago. And the same hard conversations that they went through is what we need to have at, 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 as a body um, and as um, more congregations. Um, we cannot simply raise the queer flag and welcome in queer folks. It doesn't work like that. That's the end of, of, the, of the work. What we, what we have to do as a body is to name that we have authored and condoned harm towards queer folks um, for generation, for the, for the generation that has been United Methodism. Um, that's on us as, as United Methodists. Um, we have to name it publicly, confess it, apologize for it publicly, and then we can work on reconciliation. Some of the work I did on the anti-oppression team or the anti-racism team at Duke Memorial too was about, uh, we read a, a statement from a black pastor in Alabama, uh, Georgia who uh, wrote a piece that said, look, black lives matter. Yes, it does. 
but I'm seeing all these white congregation members show up and try to march beside me, but they haven't done the work. They're the ones saying all lives matter this whole time. And now, and now today they're walking with me. I don't trust them. It's the same thing. Why would queer folks trust the United Methodist Church if we do not spend time naming what we have done to queer folks, apologizing for it and working towards reconciliation? So it's not just removing the language. It's not just the simple plan stuff. Let's just remove the harmful language. It's let's put language in there that says what we did, apologizes for it, and then puts language that infirms and empowers us. That is a huge step forward. That is part of the work. So much of it has to happen at the local, individual, and congregational level, though. But I have hope that we can. Caleb, I'm usually so prepared for these interviews. I know exactly where they're going to go, which they never really go exactly where I think they're going to go. But I'm usually so prepared. I was not prepared for the emotional weight that comes with your journey. And knowing what I know now, I even, my celebration of you in the UMC has just like, grown exponentially. I've I've celebrated you being a part of us since I've met you, but gosh, this is the story that you take with you onto the general conference floor. And I'm really grateful that you were willing to share it with us. Thank you. You're a, a sweet person. And I am delighted to be a part of this very, very big conversation that you are inviting people to. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Caleb. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.